Good morning. <laughs> that was a good response, actually, for you this morning. Uh, my name is Jenny. I'm the associate pastor here, and I need to forgive me. I'm going to put it on the floor, but not for any reason of disrespect. Um, I'm the associate pastor here. This morning, I get to preach on the passage of Philippians 3, which we just heard part of read to us. We've been studying Philippians for the past several weeks here at all of the Bethany locations, um, and we've specifically been looking at how this little book helps us understand what it means to find joy in our lives as Christians and how to cultivate that gift of joy. And this morning, we're specifically going to be looking at finding joy in the simple act of knowing Jesus. Last week, we looked at how um, we can find joy in relationships with each other. And today, we're going to really turn our focus on our relationship with the Lord and what that brings to our lives. I think what we're going to see is that this is the core of what motivates Paul, the author of this letter. It's that he wants to know Jesus, so much so that he values this one thing above everything else in his life. And we're going to look at what he means by that, by knowing Jesus, and what it looks like for us to pursue that today. Let's pray before we begin our study together. God, we give you thanks for this holy word that we have before us to study, God, what it means to know you. And we thank you, God, most for having sent your son to earth so that we might know you in a really tangible way. Would we learn more from that today, God, about who you are, who you've created us to be? In Jesus' name, amen. Um, a few weeks ago, my husband Matt and I uh, sold our first car together, which was a big deal for us. It was the first time we'd ever, I'd ever sold a car without the help from my parents or just turning it over to the dealer and letting them deal with it. And Matt really did all the work to sell this car. I just gave some helpful hints when I thought he needed them. Um, as, as a good wife should, right? And anyone who sold a car, just kidding, that was a joke. Uh, as anyone who sold a car knows, it takes a lot of cleaning and then researching pricing and then finally list the car. That's when the real work begins of sifting through all the people who maybe respond to your offer. Have any of you sold a car on Craigslist recently or something similar, a large purchase? It's crazy how many scams are out there and people trying to you know, maybe not buy the car from you, but take some money from you instead, or take the car from you, I'm not sure. Anyways, Matt would get texts at 3 a.m. from people that were clearly not in our local area, um, people wanting to give us to give them our bank account number so that they could transfer the money in. You know these, right? And Matt's favorite scam was two different people, both claiming to be military uh, members overseas who needed to buy the car before they came back and needed us to get their, you know, to wire the money. And God help anyone who's in the military actually wanting to buy a car when they're stationed overseas because we couldn't trust any of them. But anyways, long story. We, found, we finally found someone who seemed legit, who wanted to buy the car. And the next question is, how do you do this thing? Uh, where do you meet for a test drive, right? Do you, you're not supposed to give anyone from Craigslist your address, as it turns out. And how does the actual transaction take place? Do you meet at a bank so that if they give you a money order, you can make sure it cashes? I guess that's also what you're supposed to do. You insist on cash only. So this was a little, all of this was new for us. And in our case, the only time that worked to meet with this actual seller who seemed legit uh, was to meet at 8 p.m. on a dark, rainy Friday night. And so... <laughs> 
Uh, most businesses are closed by then, and so Matt gives this guy our neighbor's address, thinking that's going to save us, right? <laughs> and just to be safe, sorry, so sorry, neighbor, but uh, we told him to meet outside at the car. And I'm so nervous. I was actually kind of mad at Matt for giving this Craigslister our street number. I wondered if the car would even be there by Friday night. But Friday night came, and I opened our front door, a few minutes after eight, and I see a dad and his two daughters standing outside in the pouring rain, uh, kind of looking lost. And I was like, oh man, I feel so guilty for giving them not our actual address, blah, blah, blah. But they, they were great, and they took the car for a test drive. It turns out it was actually his oldest daughter who wanted to buy our car. Uh, and they decided after driving it, they wanted to buy it. And so we end up inviting them inside our house. After standing in the rain for a minute, really awkwardly, I was like, no, we should just, you know, it's fine. They can come into our house. And uh, we start to sign the paperwork, but still, all of us are being super careful, right? There's almost no chit-chat. Everyone kind of feels on edge and a little tense because there's a big amount of money involved. I mean, not that big. We weren't selling a brand new car, but an amount of money involved. And it came time to pay us. And uh, the dad brings out the cash, and he counts it out very solemnly for us, and it's totally silent. And uh, we take the money very carefully, and then we, we sign on the dotted line, and it's done. And there's this huge breath of relief when we actually give them the keys, and they're like, okay, both of us are realizing this other person is safe, right? And we're not, no one's in danger. <clears throat> That's why we felt relieved. So why were we all so tense? Why all that relief at the end? I think it's because today, when large amounts of money involved particularly, combined with people we don't know, with strangers, we're taught to be very cautious. It feels risky. We spook easy. We tend to take every precaution. And in retrospect, we should have met these people in a bank parking lot in the middle of the day, or a police station is actually the number one recommendation for this. But even that wouldn't necessarily have prevented us from harm. Because uh, we were dealing with people we didn't know. And we are taught to think really practically, to protect ourselves, to protect what we hold value, our possessions, our family. When it comes to our money and our kids and our career goals, we only trust the people we know best, right? Sometimes we barely trust our spouses with those things, much less neighbors or coworkers. And so it makes sense to me that many of us are also hesitant to trust our God with these things with hopes and finances and family. We don't want to get hurt. We don't want to suffer. We hold tightly to the things we care most about, and it makes sense to me. We let God in on Sundays. Maybe we give him some of our time. Maybe we give him some of our money. But our whole lives, every decision, are all of our money. And I think the reason that we are holding back primarily is we just don't know Christ that well yet. We don't know God that well yet. Maybe we aren't Craigslist wary of him, but maybe we are, a few of us. But certainly most of us aren't ready to give him as much freedom in moving in our lives and directing our decisions as we would give a spouse or a boss or a coworker. And I think we need to know Christ in order to trust him to direct our lives. You wouldn't grab a random person off the street and ask them to take an envelope full of cash for you to the bank. Most of us hopefully wouldn't do that. I think if we don't know Jesus firsthand, we won't actually trust him with the stuff that matters the most to us in life. 
Paul says over and over again that he wants to know Christ in this passage. It's his highest aim. It's the goal of everything he's doing. Why? Because it is knowing Christ, really knowing God, that we find everything else we need. The deepest longings of our hearts, our purpose, love, redemption, deep joy. So today we're going to unpack what he means when he says to know Christ and then how we do that. And first I want to give a couple points of context for this letter. We have done this before, so this is a review for many of you. It'll be quick, but there's just a couple things I think we should know about Paul first and then about Philippi. So about Paul. One, Paul is writing this letter from a prison in Rome. It's good to know. He is suffering as he writes. Um, And the second thing to know about Paul is he has a deep affection for the people he's writing to. Perhaps a deeper affection than any other letter we find him write in all of the New Testament. And he wrote a lot of them. He loves the people of Philippi. Um, This is out of his love for them. So those are just a couple things to know about Paul. A couple things to know about the city of Philippi. It's a city filled with retired war veterans and Roman soldiers. Lineage and citizenship are really highly valued there. I actually thought, uh, I don't know if this is going to be a good analogy. I thought a lot of Texas when I read about Philippi. They're very proud of their city. Texas is very proud of their state. And uh, they care a lot about what the emperor thinks in Philippi. This is where the analogy breaks down, maybe. But the last thing they wanted was a huge Christian movement in their city. And the reason is Rome, the Roman Empire, Roman emperor, was uh, not happy about the Christian movement, and Philippi cared a lot about what Rome thought. And so this means there was actually tremendous social pressure on Christians in Philippi, and perhaps persecution as well. There would be to come. There might already be. So those are some things we know about the Philippians and about Paul. And that's really all the background I think we need for this study, though there's much more to share. Um, And I'll give you fair warning, we're going to be really diving deep into Philippians 3, but we're going to jump around some. If you have your Bibles, open to Philippians 3, and we'll pretty much camp there today. And I think what we're going to find as we study this chapter is that the path to knowing Christ is actually well laid out for us here. First, we're going to look at some detours that aren't the maybe path that Paul says we should take, detours the church has taken over the years. Then we're going to look at the markers on the true path to knowing Jesus. And then finally, briefly, we'll learn what results we'll see from starting down this path. And this outline is in your bulletin if you are an outline person. But we're going to start with the detours. These are the paths the church has historically taken to lead people to knowing Christ that have not actually seemed to lead to knowing Christ. One of these paths is legalism, believing that knowing Christ is all about knowing and following all of the rules. And the other detour is that of autonomy, believing that knowing Christ is simply knowing all the right things about him, and that what we actually do with our lives doesn't matter that much to God, isn't really his business. So legalism, this is the path that Paul addresses first in verses 2 and 3, and he's not very gentle here. He says, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit and put no confidence in the flesh. And you could add there, put no confidence in our ability to follow all of the rules. 
Paul is talking about the fact that at the time, many Christian leaders were trying to get the Gentiles, which is just the non-Jewish Christians, to be circumcised and to follow all the other Jewish customs and laws. They believed that it was part of what was required to be a Christian, to basically become Jewish first, and then to become a Christian. But Paul argued against this over and over, and you've probably heard this before uh, in many of his letters, reminding his people that all that was needed is faith in Christ and in his cross, not circumcision, not a set of rules and laws. All that was required is faith. A little later in verse 9, Paul says, I am not righteous because of my own achievements and my own rule following. I'm righteous because of faith in Christ. This is a paraphrase if you're reading along. It is not my own doing. In other words, we can't know Christ simply by following a strict set of rules and morals. And in the church today, we have done this many times, and in the church historically. Uh, Someone says, I want to be a Christian. I want to be a better Christian. And whether or not we said this explicitly or maybe less, more implicitly, I think what we say is, well, you need to stop gambling, you need to stop smoking, stop drinking so much, or maybe at all, stop sleeping around, stop swearing, and then join a Bible study, volunteer on Sundays, have a morning devotion before breakfast, and pray before every meal, and you know what? Everyone will know that you're a Christian. Just do those things. You'll be a model Christian. And of course, this list of rules Christians follow misses the point just as much as the Jewish Christians miss the point about circumcision. We have a tendency to reduce our faith and our relationship with Christ to a set of rules and checklists. And as soon as that happens, we've missed the forest for the trees, so to speak. We've missed the point of our faith. But there's another detour Christians have gone down. It's kind of on the other side of the path. And this is the path of autonomy. The path that tells people that knowing Christ simply means knowing about him, right? Knowing that how he was born and how he died and how he rose again. It means believing all the right things theologically about Christ is what matters. All we have to do is know and say the right things, and then we're saved from hell. In the meantime, we'll let culture around us sort of dictate how we live and what we actually do. God gave us, you know, our practical wisdom, And I don't really think about inviting God into my day-to-day life. Paul speaks to this detour towards the end of the chapter. It's in verses 18 through 19. This is where we jump around. Paul says, Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Again, strong language. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. What he's saying is there are Christians who believe they can do whatever they want. That there's no call for them to take up their cross. That's why he says enemies of the cross, I think. There's no call for them to take up their cross and follow Christ. They're content to live pretty much however they choose, with their appetites for food and money and and sex, ruling everything. But they go to church and they say Christ is their Lord. The problem here is knowing about Christ, isn't about Christ, is not the same as knowing Christ, or even believing that what the Bible says is true. You can't, you can do all the Bible study in the world, you can go to seminary, in fact, and still won't necessarily know Jesus in the way that Paul means. I think this could be similar to if I said, yeah, I know Martin Luther King. I mean, I've read all his biographies. I've read his sermons. I took a class on him. I know everything about his life I can. I can even try to apply some of the principles he taught into my life, but I could never claim to know him. 
And part of that is, actually, I think that I was never known by him. Something about what we mean by that word know is reciprocal. If you believe that knowing Jesus means believing the right things and going to heaven when you die, you've missed who Jesus is, right? He does want us to experience the resurrection and spend eternity with him. But God desires to be with us in, the, in our living here and now, to be with us not just when everything's perfect and beautiful in heaven, but also when things are messy and hard and dark here. And as we experience God in those ways, we can't help but begin to orient our lives around him and submit our appetites and our desires to him as well. But it requires that we invite Christ into our lives, and not simply as a means to a future end. So those are the detours I've seen in this chapter. There's probably more. But what does the actual path to knowing Jesus look like? And I've been hinting at this already, but Paul really starts to flesh this out in verses 4 through 8, and then again in 12 through 14, and we'll start in 4 through 8, where Paul starts to use his own life as an example for us to learn from. He says, if anyone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew among Hebrews. Two, in regards to the law, I was a Pharisee. Three, as for zeal, I was persecuting the church. Four, as for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless, without blame. But whatever, which means he just followed the letter of the law, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, everything, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I've lost all things, I consider them rubbish, as we heard Alicia read, that I might gain Christ. Paul's explaining that his entire life used to be oriented around his identity as a Jewish Pharisee. And he was at the height of his career, so to speak. Paul is explaining that everything from the manner of his birth and who his parents were to his lifestyle as an Orthodox Jew to his passion for persecuting Christian sects, he had it all in the eyes of his peers. That may sound foreign to us, right? Those things wouldn't necessarily be on our list of things we'd achieve today. They were in, among his peers, all of this was his until he met Christ, at which point I think all those things eventually were called into question. I don't think that the day after Paul meets Christ on the road to Damascus, Paul would have been able to say all this. This is the fruit of 20 plus years of walking with Christ. But what Paul is saying is reflecting to us that knowing Christ shifted every priority in his life. It caused him to have a paradigm shift, if you will. And that's the first marker we have on the, on our, to make sure we're on the right path. Now, the language that Paul uses here to describe his paradigm shift is um, pretty powerful, not only because they have, they're strong words, but also because Paul here is using the language of accounting or business. And I am an accountant. You may or may not know. I have two jobs. I'm a pastor here, and I'm an accountant. And he's using accounting language. Um, so we're going to camp here for a moment because I thought that was really cool. <laughs> My job uh, at the accounting firm actually has nothing to do with taxes, and you don't have to remember this, but what I do is actually called auditing, which means I work with a lot of companies in Seattle uh, to look at their financial statements, help make sure they're accurate, help make sure there's no errors or 
worse lies in there. And we help companies uh, think about the future as well and make sure that what they're doing now is going to help them continue to be in business for the long haul. And what I've noticed after doing this for almost 14 years, which is crazy, is every business I work with has to care about their bottom line. If you are in business, this will not be a surprise to you. Uh, the bottom line, when I say that word, that just basically means the line that shows whether the business had a profit or a loss after their income and expenses are accounted for in a given month or year. And the bottom line drives every major decision a company has. It has to. Even not-for-profits who, by definition, sorry, that made me a little louder. Even not-for-profits who, by definition, are not-for-profit, have to pay attention to the bottom line because significant losses year after year, and they will fold. And some businesses keep a long view in mind. Amazon operated at a loss for years, right? And it was concerning to investors, but they had a long view. They said every year doesn't matter, but ultimately, we care about our bottom line, and of course now, they are turning plenty of profit. Um, ultimately, every business has to focus on that, at least in part, on profit and loss. And their decisions have to be oriented towards the profit side. What I found fascinating about this passage is that Paul is essentially auditing his own life here. He's saying, I'm going to look at everything I had in my life, all the rules I followed, all the reasons I have to be proud, all the things I feel I've accomplished, the things the world would call assets or profits. And he's realized through his relationship with Jesus that compared with what he's found in knowing Christ, these things aren't just not helpful, they're losses, they're liabilities. It's a profound thing to say because I think all of us have a bottom line. Maybe we have more than one, actually, because we are not all businesses as individuals. We have the ability to have more flexible bottom lines. They aren't just about making money. Maybe our bottom line is pleasure. Does my life make me happy? Maybe it's status and honor in our career and all that we've achieved. Maybe it's finding a strong marriage and a healthy, growing family. Maybe it's giving our kids a life that's easier than ours was. There are lots of bottom lines that we sort of are working towards. But those are the things that drive our decisions. When we stop and think about our life, those are the things we're evaluating, I think. Am I at a profit or a loss in my early retirement goal? Or in my work, in my happiness? I mean, am I overworked and underpaid and not achieving the happiness goal? We may not be able to change much in the short term, but all of us are going to make decisions based on what those bottom lines are. And what Paul is saying is my bottom line was being a successful, observant, obedient Jewish Pharisee, and I was flush with cash. I had everything I could want, it was so to speak, although he was probably doing fine financially. But when I met Jesus, I slowly came to realize that my bottom line was completely reversed that all those profits, all those things I thought I had were actually worth nothing. They were worse than nothing. They were literal dog dung, according to him, compared with what I have in Christ. That's an important word, compared with what I have in Christ. One marker on our road to knowing Christ is have our bottom line started to change? Have any paradigm shifted for us? Do we now consider anything we once put a high value on as less valuable in light of a new reality, in light of Jesus. 
when we truly get to know Christ, we start to reorient our lives around him. Our priorities change. Our values change. And we start to submit our decisions to God. Big ones, small ones. Probably small ones first. And as God shows up when we do that and proves himself faithful, we can do this with bigger and bigger decisions. And it's part of how we get to know God is actually the act of doing this. But if paradigm shifts are one marker, the other is participation. Paul uses a race analogy for this in verses 12 through 14. I know we have some runners in the room. In verse 12, he starts to say, it isn't like I'm already done. I haven't already finished this race. I still don't know Christ fully yet, and I'm not perfect. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. I don't have it yet, but I do this one thing. I forget what's behind, and I strain forward towards what is ahead. I am pressing on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now, we can take tremendous comfort in this because Paul, if Paul is not there yet, it's okay that we are not there yet, <laughs> that we are struggling on this journey just like Paul was. And the important thing is not actually winning this race. The prize he talks about is not have anything to do with literal races like we think of on earth. This is literally a participation prize, right? It's not being the one who knows Christ the most. It's not being the one who's moving fastest toward Christ. It is the fact that we are in this race at all and that we haven't given up at the first water station or injured ourselves in the medical tent. We are in the race still. We're participating. If I ever ran a marathon, I would feel like that participation prize was the biggest prize I've ever won. And I have not ever run a marathon, to clear. Bye. Jesus is not looking for the best Christian. He simply wants us to participate in what he's doing. Practically, this means simply asking God, what are you doing today, Lord? How can I be part of it? It means inviting Jesus into your life, obedience, and asking forgiveness when you fail to be obedient, which we all will. It means spending time with God in the car, in your small group, on your lunch break, it means making decisions not just with practical attention to what will make you the most money or what will make, bring you the most pleasure or what will make you feel the safest and most secure, but also what will be most in line with what Jesus is doing. I hope that the next time Matt and I sell a car, we get to give it away. It felt like that was something I thought of as we were in this process and we ended up feeling led because of the manner in which we received this car, we felt led to sell it and pay down our student debt with a practical decision. Next time, I hope we are able to give it away, that we have enough faith to do that. It means submitting decisions like that to God before acting. God won't always ask you to give something up. He won't always ask you to give something away, but he wants to participate in your life. And this is how we get to know God. When Matt and I first got married, I was still pretty much making all of my slash our financial decisions by myself. I uh, had spent 30 years making all of those decisions by myself, and I just didn't really get how to invite someone else into that. And I'm still learning, fair, but I, I have learned somewhat. And when I do that, when I invite Matt in and we make those decisions together, I usually learn something about him. I, usually also allow myself to be more fully known by him, which is part of the risk, right? And usually I make better decisions. Yeah, 
It takes time for us to invite God into decisions about our family, about our money, about our health. But God wants to be involved in all of it. Not so he can give us a bunch of hard rules to follow, but so that he can invite us to participate in what he's doing in the world. And the more we do that, the more we participate, the more we'll want to, I think, the more we'll experience Christ working and moving, and the better we'll know him. So if these are the markers on our path to knowing Jesus, let's briefly end by looking at the results of this in our lives. And the first one listed on your bulletin might surprise you, because the church has often said things like, if you do what God asks, your life's going to be better than you could ever imagine, right? You'll be happier, you'll be fulfilled, all your bottom lines will be profit, profit, profit. But the problem is that the life of Jesus did not always look, from our perspective, healthy, wealthy, and happy. And the life of Paul certainly didn't look like that. Paul writes in verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death, he says. And we're going to get to the resurrection Paul talks about at the end of that verse in a second. But first, Paul wants to know the fellowship of Christ's suffering. He wants that. The power of this statement is not that Paul is wishing to suffer. He is not seeking it out. He's not even trying to say that when we suffer, we'll automatically know Christ better. But I believe what he is saying is he wants to know the humility, the self-emptying that Christ knew. And we saw that in last week in Philippians 2. He wants to know what it is to submit to God even if it means he'll suffer. I think Paul understands this mystery that without a death of something, there can be no resurrection. It might be a death of our selfishness and our greed. It might be a death of an addiction. It might be a death of a desire for the perfect body or the perfect home or the perfect spouse. And then, only then, does a resurrection of new life spring up, a new desire, a new love, a new way to see the world. While suffering is never something I would wish on any of you, it is a given in our lives. You will not emerge unscathed. And while I believe God does not cause the suffering in the world, God enter, does enter into it. And God said, if you must suffer, so will I. So Paul says, the bottom line is my life, in my life is not the avoidance of suffering. Instead, I can know for certain that I will find Christ in my suffering because Christ entered into it. Remember, Paul's writing this from prison. He says, I will find Christ in my suffering, and as I do, I will know Christ better. And I will understand not only that Christ suffered, but I will also understand the power of Christ conquering death, conquering suffering, restoring and renewing life. He understands that to experience the fullness of that, there's something we must go through first. Mother Teresa I think I may have used it as an example before, but we're going to use her as an example again. She's a powerful example of one who actually suffered tremendous depression and doubt, even in her work in Calcutta, which she felt called to do by God. It often failed to bring her comfort. The book of her letters that was published after her death is called Come Be My Light. It reveals that she profoundly struggled with faith and with finding peace. And I want to read a portion of one of her letters to you. It's shortened quite a bit. This is written in 1950. She was 40 years old. She'd been working among the slums of Calcutta for 
two or three years at this point. And it's a little shocking, I'm going to warn you. She writes, my own Jesus. They say people in hell suffer eternal pain because of the loss of God. In my soul, I feel just that terrible pain of loss, of God not wanting me, of God not being God, of God not really existing. Jesus, please forgive my blasphemies. I've been told to write everything. That darkness that surrounds me on all sides. I can't lift my soul to God. No light or inspiration enters my soul. I speak of love for souls, of tender love for God. Words pass through my lips, and I long with a deep longing to believe in them. What do I labor for, she writes. If there be no God, there can be no soul. If there is no soul, then Jesus, you are also not true. Jesus, don't let my soul be deceived, nor let anyone deceive me. In the call, you said that I would have to suffer much. Ten years, my Jesus. You have done to me according to your will. I beg of you only one thing. Please do not take the trouble to return soon. I am ready to wait for you for all eternity. When I read this, I thought how much it sounded like a psalm, right? She cries out, terrible loneliness. Yet her love for God is so clearly evident as she writes, even in her darkness and doubt. Most of her letters sound like this, mixed with love and doubt, darkness and light. Most of us have some of these same thoughts if we're really honest at times in our lives. But what is remarkable about Mother Teresa is not her perfect faith. It's that she continued in this journey for 47 more years after this letter. She kept pouring out her heart to Jesus in the darkness. She kept inviting him into her life, even when she struggled with the deepest doubt. We don't seek to know Christ, friends, to make our lives easier. Many of us will find the opposite might be true our practical lives, I mean. But we do it because Christ is the deepest truth there is. And he holds the most compelling story for our lives than any we could write our, on our own. And we know that through grief and suffering and darkness, though these may remain for a night, there is joy that comes in the morning. There is a resurrection. And the resurrection that Jesus promises us is one of tremendous power. Power to reunite us with those we've lost. The power to obliterate the darkness. The power to heal all sickness and finish all pain. We will encounter suffering in this world, friends. And it's even found on this path to knowing Christ. But what Paul has realized is that the suffering and the pain are utterly redeemed in Christ's resurrection. He writes in verse 20, We have a citizenship in heaven. We have a country, a new country in heaven, and that we eagerly await a king from that country, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious one. When we experience suffering for the sake of the gospel, when we allow Jesus to transform our choices, to transform our bottom lines, we are proclaiming that what is in front of us isn't the end. That knowing Christ means knowing we belong to a kingdom that is forever. That nothing can tear us from the future we've been promised. We're going to invite the worship team back up. I think Andrew might be outside. So we'll invite the worship team back up in a second. But today as we close, I want you to consider whether you have these markers in your life. 
that you are on the path to knowing Christ? Do you find your priorities shifting, right, as you know Christ more? Do you find yourself asking God to participate in what he's doing in our city or in your family or even around the world? To participate in, with your finances, with your time, with your career? Or do you find yourself on one of those detours, more thinking about the things you need to check off the list to sort of maintain your good Christianness? Or do you think about God really only on Sundays when you come here? And when you've assessed where you're at in this race, and there is no shame in any of those places, ask Jesus to just show you the next step. Maybe it's a step back towards this path. Maybe it means coffee with him tomorrow morning. Maybe it's a conversation with God and your spouse about a big decision in your life. Matt and I are trying to buy a house right now, and this feels like one we really need to submit to God. Maybe it's a conversation with God, or maybe it's prayer with our prayer ministers. Because you're not even sure how to enter this race. You got off in the injured tent, and you don't know if you can re-enter. I would invite you to consider just that next step this morning and remind you simply that none of us has it figured out yet. But we can lean into Paul's tremendous statement that there is nothing that beats knowing Jesus in this life. And we can ask God to show us the truth of those words in our lives. Let's pray. God, we come before you knowing that this is a long journey. Many of us have been walking it for years, God. Some of us are just starting on this path to knowing who you are and allowing what we know of you and who we know you to be to shape our lives. God, we ask that you would shape our lives, that you would reveal yourself to us, God, so that we can know you better. And would you help us to just take that one next step towards you? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.